The following program contains mature themes that may offend you and challenge you. As a result, you may paint an innumerable amount of Bristol boards, piss, and exhale fire, call for the host to be disemboweled in the village square, push for suppression, compelled speech, and an infinite number of deplatformings. Other listeners may experience the urge to laugh as we all hurl towards Armageddon, tolerate diversity of thought, control their childlike emotional impulses, stop taking everyone and everything so seriously. But either way, listener discretion is advised. This is Unmentionable, an unhealthy dose of realism with your host, Jordan Power. Welcome to another week of Unmentionable Podcast. I don't know what number episode this is. But I think 35. 35 episodes. Yeah. It really just feels like a flash. I know. I was just thinking about it. I was like, well, how did we get to 35 so fast? So many interesting people have really yeah. been on this show. Um, so if you have not rated the show yet on iTunes, go to iTunes. Five star, please. If you want to join the Patreon, we've seen a bunch of you signing up. There's lots of content on there. Patreon.com slash Unmentionable Podcast. I've been spending my week trying to educate people on the pandemic, like I always do. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> I've been, uh, I feel like people are s- slowly, s- like, not falling for the government's tricks anymore. Mm. Like, give me an example. Like, so I was talking to someone the other day, and, like, it's funny when people have, like, a narrative in their mind, and, like, they're not willing to move n- no matter what factual information comes in front of them. Like, that's a sign of, like, a really rigid thinker, right? Yeah. Where, like, new information comes in, you should be able to change your thinking, and so I was just kind of like blowing people's minds. Like, for example, like all I keep hearing about is the Delta variant, right? Delta variant. Oh, my God, we got to watch out. Oh, my friend, she's fully vaccinated. She won't go on a patio because the Delta variant, Delta variant. And I, right. and I just said to someone the other day, so we've been hearing about the Delta variant for nine weeks. OK, and for nine weeks, the cases and deaths have gone down every week. Yeah. The, the Delta variant threat. That's not how a threat works. <laughs> so I'm not saying it wasn't a thing, but if for every week it's gone down, then it's not a thing. It's not a big thing. It's, it's a like th- a- but the media lost their cash cow in Trump. So now COVID's their cash cow and they don't right. want to let that go because, you yeah. know, like once they lost Trump, MSNB, MSNBC, CNN, 70% of their audience, Fox is done too. Not down, but not done. Yeah. Um, and so I, I said to people those things and I was like, if it's a threat, then it's not really a threat. And then the next narrative I heard was, well, have you heard about the UK? Like, the UK is out of control. And I said to them, well, what what about what's going on there? And and I said, because if you compare their daily deaths, um, they actually have less deaths per day than Canada. But the narrative we're hearing in Canada is Canada is doing so well. We're almost at the end, which we are doing well. Right, yeah. But if in comparison, I'm like... We actually have more deaths per capita per day than the UK, but you're telling me the UK is a problem. Mm. And what's happening in the UK is they're testing so much that when you are vaccinated um, or is asymptomatic, Fauci was actually talking about this, they can go up in your nose, find a little bit of cells. It was never enough cells that you would get sick or you would pass it to another people. It was just a small amount of cells. It's the same thing with HIV where they say you're you have a very tiny amount of cells you're undetectable, therefore you could never pass it to someone. But because they're testing so much, the cases are going up. But at the end of the day, it's like we've always been obsessed with the cases, and what's always mattered is just deaths in hospital. Numbers. Yeah, because the narrative in the beginning was we have to two weeks mm-hmm. to slow down the curve so that we don't overwhelm the hospital. And then it moved to we need to get rid of COVID. And so I said that to someone else, blew their mind. And then the other thing I hear about is Israel. 
Yeah. Israel's oh, doing yeah. so bad. Oh my God, have you heard about Israel though? They put yeah. their masks on, the cases are blah, 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 blah. But they always say like the cases are three times what they were last month. They tripled, but it's like they went from like 10 to like 30 a day. You know what I mean? I yeah, mean, it's, it's like, like three times. Yeah. You could say, oh my God, they tripled. But yeah, then you look at the raw numbers, right? And then I, so I sent to my friend, I go, well, okay. Um, this is the number of deaths. And I was sending, I was like, these are the number of deaths in Israel. And it was like, January 29th, zero deaths. January, or sorry, June 29th, no deaths. June 30th, no deaths. July 1st, no deaths. July 2nd, one death. July 3rd, zero deaths. So again, it's like you can go on Google and just type in Israel COVID deaths and see zero, 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 UK, 12 deaths in a country of 66 million people wow. is actually better than Canada. But it just shows how you can parse data in any way. But the media just wants you to click the, you don't really, you read the headline, you don't really care, right? Yeah. And stuff like that. So I was talking to different people like that. And you just see kind of like their minds when you tell them these things. Like you just see their minds go because they've been sold something for so long that it's so hard for them to get out of that uh, headspace. Um, and I think kind of like in Ontario now, we had one death today. I think we're now at the point where if you continue the lockdowns, you will have more deaths per day from other things. Yeah. Meaning when you have lockdowns, Alzheimer's worsens. People die quicker. Heart problems, overdoses, suicides, mental health issues. As we know, as an employment goes up, other things. Plus, people are really scared of the hospital. They don't want to go to the hospital. They think they're going to get COVID. Mm. So now we've got two-year surgery backlog. Oh, yeah. We've got people, millions of tests were missed because people won't go to the hospital. And so it's like now I feel like it's it's morally reprehensible to continue at one death a day because for sure you could probably find another more than one death a day as a result of the lockdowns. Like, for example, one of the stats that's really interesting is if you look at the excess amounts of overdoses res resulting in death uh, among the age group, I think it's 20 to 45. There was 500 more people died in the past 12 months than the, the previous year from overdoses resulting in death. Well, in that exact age group, 100 people died of COVID. So five times more people are dying as a result of lockdowns. You don't know if all those deaths were because that of, but yeah. when you look at the previous year and it's 500 more you're like what what happened in that previous year well lockdowns we had lockdown. so these are the kind of things when you start extrapolating with missed cancer screenings and alzheimer's and blah 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 and that's just death we're not talking about like general psychological trauma of children mm. that it's it's laughable so i just think when you when you read headlines and we all read headlines and sub headlines just make sure you're parsing the data in a different way to try to understand the full picture in the way that like if Israel goes a whole week and one person dies, that's a win. It means the vaccines are doing a great job for now. We don't know if it'll change, <laughs> but it's just so interesting. You hear people are like, have you heard about Israel? Zero deaths a day. <laughs> have you heard about the UK? Actually, we're doing worse than them in deaths. Well, yeah. that's, I don't, it's, they go, well, it's coming. The Delta variant is coming. And I said, well, the previous narrative was the Delta variant was a threat. Then that kind of fell apart. And then it was like, well, when the Delta variant is a majority of cases, that it'll be a problem. Now it's 73% of cases and it's still not a problem. <laughs> you know what I'm saying here? Yeah. <laughs> like sometimes I feel like I'm in a fun house. Anyways, we're going to get to Dave Pounds. Um, so Shivy found this great guy who cured his alcoholism using MDMA, combination of MDMA and therapy. Similar to our previous guest, Thomas Hartle. Hartle? Chartle? Hartle? Hartle, I think. Hartle, who um, treated his anxiety around terminal cancer with mushrooms. 
So we have a really long interview with him coming up. So we want to keep this short. Before we get to that, top story around the world. Around the world. Everyone is on the edge of their seat. <laughs> Andrew Cuomo's daughter, Michaela, declares herself demisexual. Ooh. That's interesting. And her father's sexual proclivities is just that he's a pervert that touches women without their consent. <laughs> so it's an interesting family. They've got a lot of different things. And he's just not he's just not resigning. Yeah. Why is that? And I sort of I was like, I kind of like like obviously I don't love predators, but I kinda like people who don't apologize. Like I won't ever apologize for a joke because then uh -huh. you just give power to yeah. the audience or the people that don't like you, or you just they know they can get you. Right. Next time. So you just go like Ricky Gervais has a thing where he just goes, I just want to apologize. Yeah. Yeah. So Michaela Kennedy Cuomo, um, 23, came out. She came out. I don't, don't, don't know why you have to come out, but she <laughs> came out an Instagram post last month as queer, but now has declared herself demisexual. According to WebMD, demisexual people only feel sexually attracted to someone when they have an emotional bond. So, Michaela Kennedy Cuomo as demisexual is also what um, ninety percent of women globally are. Literally everybody, almost everybody. But how does a rich white girl from a privileged family get attention? When you I was in when I was in elementary school, I feared that I was lesbian. When I was in middle school, I came into my family and close friends as bisexual. When I was in high school, I discovered pansexual and thought, that's the flag for me. And I've recently learned more about demisexuality and have believed that that identity resonates with me most. You know, what's so funny about this is like, first of all, she's all over the goddamn board. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. First, she likes pussy. <laughs> then, no, I realized I like pussy and cock. And then pansexuality, for people not know, it's like kind of where you say, like, I'm just attracted to the person. Yeah, anything. Like all, every, everybody. And then she me. just settles on. I'm demisexual. Yeah. It's like, that's not even connected to the previous thing. Yeah. The previous things are about putting specific genitals in your mouth. And she's is saying, that? right, <laughs> is it a pussy? Like, what am I putting in my mouth, right? And then she's saying, like, I'll only put it in my mouth if I'm emotionally attracted to the women, which I get, or to the person, which again is the position of 90% of the people. Yeah. And demisexuality tells you nothing about the person. <laughs> is she a demisexual when it comes to women? Is she a demisexual when it comes to men? What What is going on here? So she said that she believes that identity resonates with her the most. Kennedy Cuomo said she's always dreamed of a world in which nobody would have to come out. Why you come like why are you coming out? Why nobody wants to actually Like if know. you tell people you're gay or bisexual, you're like it's or trans, you're announcing to the world it, there's a, it plays a role, right? Yeah. It's saying like, "Hey, just let everyone know like I like dick." Yeah. Okay, you you do have to come out. It sucks that people have to come out, but you kind of have to come out because we assume when a baby's born it's heterosexual. Yeah. That's just kind of the thing. But she has to come out and get attention to tell the world that she only has sex with people that she's emotionally attached to. And by the way, nothing's going to make men run from the goddamn hills than telling them that. <laughs> because what you're saying is I will only yeah. have sex with you if I'm emotionally attached to you. All these guys are like, fuck, oh, this girl fuck won't this just girl. fuck. Yeah, yeah. She won't just have a one night stand with me. Like... <laughs> So much work. <laughs> anyway, she says, because everyone's sexuality would be assumed fluid in her utopia. But in a world that force feeds 
cisgender heterosexuality. She's talking about her dad when he, you know, touches people's vaginas without their consent. <laughs> he just keeps his job. Coming out of the closet is a lifelong process of unpacking internalized social constructions and stigmas. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, she'll be governor in about 10 years. <laughs> yeah. You know, how this is, yeah. you know where this is headed. She added that when she first came out as queer, she feared she'd be perceived as attention seeking. Oh. oh. No, not at it's all. Still are perceived as attention seeking. Since maybe, it's hip like. or cool to not be hetero in my hetero in my lip, liberal bubble. I love how people associate sexualities, which is like ingrained in you with like hip or cool. Yeah. You know? It's yeah, like I get it. what is it even like what isn't it just who you are and then please shut the fuck up? Like Kennedy Cuomo last year tweeted she was looking for love. Joking, there was more room for significant others on boyfriend Cliff. A reference to her dad's self-glorifying COVID-19 <laughs> poster. Cuomo's office didn't return a request for comment. Would you like to comment <laughs> on the fact that your daughter needs to love someone before she has sex with them? Not even love, just has to be emotionally connected. I mean, that's a huge percentage of women and also a big percentage of men. Men, yeah. A lot of people feel quite empty from just meaningless transactional yeah. sex. Yeah. We don't need to hear from you. <laughs> 12 months from now, they'll alter the flag again and add another color. And then she'll be that because she's been changing all the time. I just, my friend, I said to my, when, when they started doing the pronoun thing, I said to my friend, I said, you know, some of it's legitimate, but I said to my friend, I go, it'll never end. I said, you've opened the Pandora's box now. Yeah. It'll never end. And then it was Zer, Z, Ni. Knee, nee. neo pronouns. It is nee. popular. I saw a thing on TikTok the other day. A girl said, "Hi, my pronouns are we and us. We and us. That's fun. Plural <laughs> pronouns. That's gonna be fun. You know, you know us, us. Yes, yeah, singular us. No, us is in singular. Hey, Jordan, do you wanna go? We 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 are coming to the picnic. How many people? It's just me. Yeah, I'm it's all of us. It's just we. I'm, like, what do you mean? I'm we? multiple people. <laughs> And then my friend he signed up for Hinge the other day, and he sent me all the pronoun options. I never even heard of any of this. It was like V, Ver, V, this. Uh, this is a fee, fee, right? Dude, and then I, I'm right about it never ending because it's never now ending. it's the guy who had surgery to identify as Korean, and then Rachel Dolezal came out, my favorite woman, and she sure. said, I support him. I guess it's a him. Yeah. I support him and his Korean eyes that he purchased. <laughs> and now transracial will move into the forefront. Transracial, like that's oh wow, unbelievable! <laughs> it's unsane. Jordan. We gotta come up with something trendy. Like we have to trans something, then we have to like make it the world like should know. Oh, this is also one other thing we made up. No, we have to unsubscribe. You have to put. <laughs> I told you, you have to say enough. <laughs> we gotta do trans objects. That's what we gotta do. I'm a, I'm a microphone. It's going to be the whole, I can't even, I can't even wait for pride in 10 years. I can't even <laughs> wait for what stuff, because the thing is, is about, they just go like this. They never, no one says no. Yeah. Because you try to push back and the person goes, how dare, dare you, you question my yeah. identity? It's like your identity is stupid. <laughs> that you think you're another race. You're stupid. You know, it's, it's yeah. a fine line between mental illness and some of this stuff. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Thin, raise the shop line. So she says she feared she'd be perceived as attention seeking. <laughs> so she did an exclusive interview with the New York Post about something that doesn't even matter. That was her biggest fear. So she's been doing press. <laughs> Dear God. 
Anyways, we're going to get to our interview. Dave Pounds, uh, there's an article about him in the Telegraph. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, pretty horrific, horrific story of his. It's hard to change gears after that. Oh, yeah. To try and talk serious now. I really got to just like. <sighs> Dave uh, witnessed something really. We'll let him describe what he witnessed. But he witnessed something unimaginable when he was 12 years old and had really, really deep trauma, which led to emotional flashbacks, PTSD, excessive drinking. And he joined a study in 2019 with a 13 other alcoholics in the UK to try to use MDMA to, I guess, confront a lot of their issues, but um, reduce their drinking or eliminate their excess of drinking. Um, and it was really life-changing for him. There's some studies in Canada going on right now. We talked about Thomas Hartle with the mushrooms. There's a clinic right by my house where they're trying to do ketamine-infused therapy. So there's a lot of new age things coming out, and I think people have a natural aversion to certain things because they associate them with street drugs or party drugs. Um, But these things tend to be really transformative for certain people, and... It's kind of cool that um, we're trying new things when for 30, 40 years it was just talk therapy and take this SSRI or this benzo. And there was really not a lot of answers for people. Um, So this interview is very, let's say, triggering in the beginning. The first 15 minutes are kind of hard to get through. Um, But um, I hope it's informative for people. And um, I hope you're in the mindset to listen to it. Um, he's he's an interesting person. I mean, he's just Very really just, um, he found something that worked for him. And it might be something that works for you. It might be something you want to look into in your specific country. I know, I think in the U- U.S. as well, they're trying different things. Um, so if you're struggling in some way and you feel like you've hit a wall in terms of conventional therapy, then it might be something you want to look into. So here's our interview with Dave Pounds. We are here with Dave Pounds in his psychedelic trip behind him. Um, <laughs> pink chair. Even that pillow, Dave, that you just were holding. Can, can you show our audience your pillow before we get started? <laughs> funky, wow, funky, man. Funky. <laughs> Is the rest of your house like that? Not entirely, no. No, just is this a special man cave room? No, parts of it are a little bit. I mean, um, cream and white are so boring, aren't they? Yes. No, definitely. No, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty awesome. You were saying before we started talking, you were saying that that's a wallpaper behind you. Yeah, it is. I don't know where it was bought from. Not that that might be uh, well known in Canada anyway. But uh, no, I've got no idea. Funky. Looks good. So, um, Dave, I read about you. Uh, I believe it was Telegraph, uh, the Telegraph. Um, we had a guy on previously on the show who was the first guy in Canada to take magic mushrooms. He was a terminal cancer patient, um, and he was using it to treat his anxiety around that. And we thought this would be an interesting follow-up because I am personally familiar with both drugs. Uh, neither times did I pair it with any sort of therapy, but this seems to kind of be something that's moving into the forefront over the past little while, um, unconventional therapy methods. Like for example, there's a clinic right by my house that just opened and they are giving people ketamine infusions, um, and then pairing that with an hour therapy right after, um, 
so it's kind of cool to see this industry changing because I'm someone who suffered with anxiety and mental health problems, especially when I was younger. And the solution just used to be take an SSRI. Yes, it's very flattening and numbing. Um, yes, the drugs are decades old and, you know, it's been compared placebo wise to exercise and stuff like that. But it's interesting to see countries opening up to different kinds of therapy, um, particularly in your case with MDMA, um, which is normally for people listening or not familiar with that. It's more of usually a party drug that people take at EDM events, um, usually all around the world. Um, that's actually kind of how I became familiar with it. So look, take us back. Um, I mean, you, you went through something when you were 12 years old that would test a lot of people um, to the point where I was reading that article and I really kind of froze uh, when I was reading it. I really couldn't really process the story and we don't have to go into too much detail, but can you kind of explain what happened to you when you were younger? Yeah, I can. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we, we lived in a very middle England uh, house in, in the middle of England. Um, and during the week, mum worked in a restaurant in the evenings. And this particular evening, um, like you say, I was 12 at the time. Dad was away um, in a place called Durham, which is, you know, two or three hours drive or train ride. He was giving a lecture. Um, and he was due back, actually, about the same time as my mum. Mum had got a lift home from work with a colleague and dad, dad's train connection, his train was delayed, so he missed his connection. So he was going to be home a little bit later. Of course, mum didn't know any of this because this was the days before mobile phones. So anyway, mum arrived home with this guy. Uh, I couldn't sleep. So when she came home, I thought I'll go and say hello. I went down the stairs and our stairs went round a U-bend halfway down. As I went round the corner, I saw mum coming in with this guy and the babysitter letting them in. So I kind of peeled back thinking, who comes around this time of night? This is unusual. So I decided not to go downstairs. The babysitter left. I heard, you know, what sounded like tea being made in the kitchen. I wasn't sure whether to go downstairs or not. And as it transpired, without going into all the detail, this guy took the invitation, um, kind of made two and two add up to five and thought it was for something else. Um, and when mum refused his advances, he just went berserk. Um, I, I was upstairs kind of hearing muffled conversation, but not the real content of all of it. Uh, and then there were some really strange noises. Um, lounge door flew open, kitchen door flew open, drawers and cupboards were being opened frantically, things dropping on the floor, then more doors uh, being opened and closed. And then there were, so I started to creak downstairs a little bit and there were some more sounds that I didn't understand as a 12 year old, but probably do as an adult. And, and I'm now really scared, um, not knowing whether to go down or go back to bed. In the end, I decided to go back to bed and, and lay there. The next 
thing. I know there's footsteps coming up the stairs. Um, my bedroom door is opened. And I'm just pretending to be asleep. And all I can hear now is panicky breathing. You know, really strong, fast, panicky breathing. And I now know something bad must have happened. Um, he, he seemed to be watching over me for minutes and minutes. It might have been a minute, but it just seemed to go on for ages. Then he left, um, checked the other rooms and went back back downstairs and that's the last thing I heard um, and I just lay there frozen I mean absolutely frozen um, didn't turn over didn't blink uh, and about an hour and a half later but that's a guesstimate there was a loud banging on the windows downstairs and I just gambled that it was my dad so I flew downstairs which I can still vividly picture ran across the room to the back of the house, threw the curtains open, and Dad was there saying, I can't get in. And the reason was there was a key um, locked. There was a key on the inside, and Dad couldn't get his key from the outside. So pointed him round to the, the other door, the front of the house, um, and he clearly saw I was distressed, said what's up, and I said, I don't know. And, you know, we then walked, we then went into the lounge together and it was, you know, something you would see in a horror film. Um, she, she'd been stabbed to death, stabbed many, many times. And as you know, blood is, uh, blood makes things even more dramatic, you know, visually. Um, and she'd been raped. And I think clearly losing your mum is the worst thing. And in that fashion, the worst thing. But there was something really, um, I don't know, it, it, it's the last image I have of my mum, apart from being stabbed, is her trousers and her underwear around her ankles. Right. And in, in, in dignity isn't the right word, but it's it's something like that. She was that was the last image we have of her. Wow. Um, I, you know, and all all any of us can hope is we think she may have been knocked out before she was stabbed and raped. And whilst you don't hope that for your mum, you hope if they are the events, you hope that was the sequence. So she didn't see him. Yeah. Anyway, right. going into too much detail. Wow. What was the first thing your dad did? Well, dad just pulled me out of the lounge. Um, and then it's a bit of a blur of going over the road, waking the neighbours up and going into their house. Dad got my brother and sister over the road as well. Police came. Um, I spoke to the police. This guy <clears throat> was arrested within hours, you know, seen leaving the restaurant together where they worked, babysitter let me in, you know, I saw him with a look around the corner of the stairs. So um, he, I didn't have to go to court. Uh, he got life in prison, um, would have been let out, I guess, many years ago now, 
I, I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's still alive. Where were your other, where were your siblings at the time? They were in bed asleep. So they slept through the whole thing? Yeah. Wow. Jesus. Oh, my God. So right after that happened, did anyone in your close family, uh, you know, say that you should maybe speak to someone? No. And I'm, that would have been because there weren't any obvious services. Uh, of course, with the police now, that would immediately engage a whole support system and structure. Um, well, this is back in the mid-70s, uh, probably before you guys were born. Um, but the fact that I'm in my 50s and it's, it's still having an impact just shows you the power of trauma. So we, we had one day off school and then went back to school. And the next time I spoke about it to my dad, and this absolutely isn't a criticism of him, he was doing the best he could. Um, I was 31 years old. Right. Wow. When you went back to school, did, did it seem like your classmates and the teachers knew what happened? Um, for sure they did. I mean, it, it was my birthday the next day. And, you know, my best mate came around with a birthday present, you know, a Leeds United scarf and a Leeds United mug. As, as I remember him, him giving that to me on, on, on outside the house. Um, we moved in to the house that we went to that night, which was directly opposite the one we lived in, uh, because the family who owned the house were actually uh, going to the States. He was an academic and they were going there for a year. So we lived there for most of a year before we found a new house. And your siblings in the years after because um, I've I've seen a lot of trauma, not only in my own life, for people in my life, you know, inner circle, and it's been my experience that people have different constitutions, so people process the trauma in different ways. Some people shut down, some people explode. Um, did you notice a difference in the way that you processed it versus your other siblings? Um, I think we've all we've all reacted slightly differently. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's not something we've talked about in depth. I think it's something that's recognized. And even now, kind of, maybe we shouldn't talk about it. I think, I think they would be potentially uncomfortable talking about it. Um, I, I've got to the point where I'm comfortable talking about it. Um, certainly situations like this when um, I'm doing whatever I can to raise awareness and education for potential solutions uh, for PTSD because the current toolkit for treating PTSD and depression and other emotional disorders, it, the toolkit is pretty, pretty limited. Right. Are you talking about in um, terms so of therapy or in, like in terms of therapy or are you talking about in terms of like the medication traditional medication that's offered certainly the traditional mainstream uh, medications 
So just to finish off, Jordan, with your previous question, I, I think we certainly my my reaction to the trauma was uh, far more severe than my brother and sister. And I, I think that is because, um, you know, I had this um, two, two, two and a half hour period of knowing there was something not quite right to knowing actually there's a disaster going on here and being frozen in bed and not able to release any of that energy. energy. I mean, you it sounds as though you're well-versed in trauma. Um, you know, and if you think about how animals handle trauma, they can be in fight or flight. And when the danger's gone, a lot of animals lie down and just quiver. And that's mm. their method of processing the trauma. Then they're kind of back to normal. Whereas all that energy was just trapped and I wasn't going anywhere. And I certainly didn't feel immobilized, as in, you know, I kind of switched down the whole system, including, you know, my brain in terms of being conscious or awake I was very much awake and extremely terrified and I think that that is where trauma gets trapped both in in your brain and in in your body I think there's a physical element to this too yeah you mentioned when you were 18 that you started having uh, flashbacks um, but then at that period did you you didn't seek help because I, I also read that you didn't bring it up to your wife and kids yeah, I, Telegraph article was great. I'm not sure I said that because it, it's not quite true. Um, I had my first symptoms at 18. So from kind of 12 through to 18, we kind of got on with it and it, life became okay. Um, I'd probably become a little bit of a risk taker until I was 18 when this panic attack hit me. I was just walking down the road, going to see some mates for a beer. And this this sense of terror just came rushing through my chest and body. And I just I couldn't do anything else but run. I was terrified, hadn't got a clue what it was all about. Obviously over time, I became to understand it was almost certainly linked back to the trauma. And that really was the start of several decades of panic attacks. Um, I, I, I'm gonna say anxiety attacks, but that kind of underplays it. Um, very, very acute episodes of fear. These are the emotional flashbacks. It sounds like an, and then, uh, sorry to interrupt, it sounds like an elevated trauma response. Usually that's what happens is the way that your brain connects and your synapses is that you have an elevated trauma response. I have very, not on the level that you experience, but I, I have gone through quite traumatic experiences in my life. And I noticed that um, loud sounds will set me off. Uh, my dog's also the same way and he comes from an abusive household. Um, loud sounds um, or um, if I'm nervous in certain situations, my stress response will produce a lot of sweat. So um, if I'm in a certain situation, my back will start gushing sweat. Um, it's a, it, I walk through the world, uh, I can easily be triggered. Um, is, that, is it similar to what you're kind of talking about? Yeah, that, that was the third thing I was going to mention. There is always this um, heightened feeling of fight or flight. 
even when you know you're feeling relaxed and you know nothing's worrying you and you're with friends and it might be a nice summer day if there's a loud bang mm-hmm. i'm up i've i've jumped and i look around and pretty much nobody else has reacted the same way and i think that's because you know your body and your mind gets stuck in a state of fight or flight um and it, it's that's where it's very physical i think and it, interestingly um i i read a book in about 2015 16 called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And I was turning the pages and for the first time ever, and remember guys, I've had decades of searching for answers here. I was turning the pages and said, this guy gets it, this guy gets it, this guy gets it. Um, And he he clearly does get it. Um, It is definitely a, 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 there is trauma trapped in the body and as well in the in the brain. And have you come across this little walnut-shaped part of the brain called the amygdala? Right, it's the fear response center, right? Yeah, yeah. So is 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 it that when you are traumatized, the amygdala grows, or that it's more active? I think it's. I've heard it. It might be Bessel van der van der Kolk that called it a watchtower. So it's kind of always on the lookout. But in most people. It's kind of down here at maybe a two or a three level of alert. I think with trauma, it's probably more like a six or a seven. Um, and that there are, I mean, for me, there are certain triggers that cause me to become very anxious in, you know, things like um, it, really anything that leads me to feel like I have no control, which is exactly the position of you know, the evening when mum died. So it might be, right, I think I've got this disease or that disease. And the number of trips that I've made over the years to the doctors is not innumerable, but it's it's dozens. It's, it's I, I know exactly what you're saying. The idea that you don't want to relinquish control because you, and you always, what you try to do is you try to get ahead of possible threats that might not even be threats. So the idea is like why you want control is, okay, how do I prevent threats coming in? Well, I have to anticipate them. I have to get ahead of them. I have to somehow prevent them. Do you feel like when you were became a father that you became overly protective? Um, not, not that I know of. It's a really interesting question. Not, not that I know of, but I could see how it could lead to that for sure. Yeah. Like I, I've yeah. seen, I've seen similar situations in parents that they, I guess the thinking is that I don't want you to go through what I went through, so I'm going to work to prevent any threats from happening to. Yeah, I, I, that makes complete sense. I, I guess, I guess the perverse thing is logically and intellectually, you know, you come to a point. I don't know whether you've got to this point, Jordan, where actually control is the last thing you need. Letting go is the is the thing you need. Right. But, yes, and you don't know if you'll ever get there or you'll ever be at the level of the average person in terms of that they can just experience life as it comes. Some people can just process life as it, you know, let it, pro- comes, they can process it and let it go. 
um, where some people always will have that need for control. Um, I'm sure when you were drinking, um, I'm sure that you experienced, because uh, usually the way that drinking works, and I don't know if it was your case, but it, it works for a while, like any drug, it's great. In the beginning, it's all pleasure. And then it's pleasure and a bit of pain. And then usually by the end of abusing a drug, um, it's all pain. Did you experience yeah. that? Yeah, 100%. 100%. You know, it, for me, less is more, like lots of things in life. I, I wish some authors would know that because you read a book that's 280 pages and say, you could have told me that, 45 pages. And I think drinking is the same. I think... You know, when you are constantly armed, you know, a glass of wine is probably a helpful way to rewind. But if you take it to three bottles and within three months, that's three and a half bottles, it kind of gets to the point where, I mean, you know, alcohol is a depressant, so it's just not going to help if you overdo it. It's like pouring gasoline on a fire of anxiety. I mean, eventually it's yeah. just going to get out of control. Um, so you, you, at one point and mentioned, I, I was reading the article, I don't know if they got this factually, uh, wrong, but it says September, 2014, you were in the pub with your cricket team and you got through three bottles of vodka. Does that mean you, you yourself drank three bottles of vodka? Yeah. And I, I don't remember all of that. I certainly wasn't counting, but that's what, that's, <laughs> Someone that's was. what the family, yeah, that's what the family said. I, I made the mistake of things were getting so out of control the panic started coming from nowhere instead of being triggered by something specific um and i just thought i'd take some time off work well that was the worst thing because all you've got then is you and your head and everybody else is out of the house at work and your mates are all at work and um so you go to pub at lunchtime back at tea time and then it kind of became one thing then you become more and more you know, you're building a fertile ground for anxiety and panic by doing that. And really naive, I know that, but when you're desperate, you're desperate. I mean, this is how powerful it is. If, if, you've, if you've got the intelligence to know that it's not going to help um, long-term or short-term, it's going to get worse day by day. Drinking is just in excess bad for you, but you still do it. And you do it again and again. Um, so I was having bouts of two or three weeks drinking pretty much every moment I was awake. And I'd try and have a week off or a moderate week. And I'd be back on again. And it all came crashing down. I'd, I'd been drinking for about two weeks. And um, this was every day, all day when I was awake. And that final day, I'm told, I drank three bottles of vodka probably three quarters of a liter each and woke up groggy tea time saturday walked down to the pub or as my daughter said you staggered all over the place dad and embarrassed me in front of my friends she never lets me forget that um i saw a mate over the road from the cricket club and said you know steve have you got 10 minutes because i i was just absolutely desperate i didn't know where to go what to do he came over i threw a load more gin and tonic down and remember another mate coming down and picking me up 
and that's pretty much the last thing I remember. Uh, and then I woke up in, in hospital um, with this big burly chap next to me. Um, so I wasn't allowed to leave. Uh, and then just sick all night long. Um, the next day, when I was sober, all I was thinking, well, they'll let me out now and I'll be back in the cricket club at lunchtime. Sunday afternoon is pretty good up there. Um, and they they gave me a, they gave me a choice of one really to go and spend some time in hospital. I said, "There's absolutely no way I'm going to hospital." And they said, "We found a bed for you in London." There was even less chance of me going to London, which is a hundred miles away. Um, and it took took them three times to ask the question for it to click that they were really giving me a choice of one, but they wanted me to make the decision, which is was really. I can volunteer to do this or they will make it happen, which we call being sectioned over here. And is that the first time you spoke to someone about this professionally? No. I I remember going to the doctors when the panic and anxiety first started happening. I thought, this, this just something is wrong here. And I, I don't know why this is happening. And I went to the doctors three times in a week and was pretty much told... Uh, on the third visit, I could tell he was getting a bit pissed off with me. And he said, to be honest, Dave, you're going to have to sort yourself out. I remember sitting there thinking, you know, fuck me, sort yourself out. If only I'd thought of that. What genius is this man? But actually, he didn't know any better and he didn't have any more sophisticated tools. And I'm not sure we've moved on a lot further since that point, I think there's more understanding and more openness, but I'm not sure the tools are any better, which is why, you know, MDMA and other psychedelics seems to have so much power and promise. We've got to be fast tracking this stuff. Yeah. Well, as an aside, I do come from a family of doctors and nurses, and I can tell you that it's, I don't think it's necessarily that they don't care. It's that it's an overtaxed system that really only allows you to see someone for 15 minutes um, and then you've got 60 more patients. So usually the answer is, um, you know, how do I refer you somewhere else or how do I shove this SSRI in your mouth or benzo or whatever they have? Um, they're just not, it, it, the system's just not equipped for it. Um, but did they, so did, so the question I have, cause it's in the article that you tried NHS and private therapy. Did you end up going to some sort of a psychotherapist and, and starting the whole process of speaking to someone before the MDMA? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was in my 50s when I took the MDMA. So from my now early 20s, it was 20s, 30s, 40s, and part of my 50s, just on a relentless search for an answer. So you go through the NHS, and you know, as you've described, it's the same over here. You'll get allocated a psychotherapist um, that you might see in two or three months' time, or problems problems I've got is today, not in three months time. Um, and then if there's no connection with a psychotherapist, it's going to be very unlikely you're going to make much progress, I think. And um, aside of that, it's prescription tablets. Um, so you take those because you think you're in good hands. There's a lot of science behind this stuff. And they don't work. So you give up on those. And then it's decades and decades of 
whole, you know, I, I think I've probably seen over 50 therapists and tried, you know, that many therapies. And um, they've all been, not all been, they've not all been hopeless. They've pretty much all been hopeless. I, I would hold, I would wave a flag in favour of EMDR. Um, I think that was responsible with a great guy who, who I did that with, who I think got me back on an aeroplane um, for the first time in 30 years. Is it eye movement deprogramming, was the R in it? Yes, eye movement desensitization and reprogramming. Reprogramming. So how does um, that work? Because I've seen YouTube videos of that. Well, that, that works essentially... And I think it was discovered by a Canadian lady, Francine Shapiro. And I think she was Jew, driving obviously. through the... Yeah. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> she, she, Jew, did you say? Yeah, Jew. They, I'm yeah. a big fan of the Jews. They, they just come up with all the answers. <laughs> all right. Okay. So she, she, she was feeling troubled, I think, and driving through a forested area uh, with the sunlight flickering. And she got to the end of the journey... Um, and noticed she felt much better. I think that's the start of the whole thing. So the idea is, with a therapist, you just watch a screen which has got a, a button or a dot going across it, left and right, which your eyes follow. And while you're doing that, you recall unpleasant memories. And the whole process is supposed to take the sting out of the emotion as attached to that memory. So you do that for 30 seconds or a minute and then you stop and there's a little chat and then you talk about what you've, what came to mind during that process. And then you go again and you just go through several phases of that. Um, and it's it, it seems to be very effective for some people. How much better did you and feel I, after it? Yeah, well, I, I don't think it helps me with the trauma of mum. But I think it absolutely got me away from feeling complete panic about getting on an aeroplane. Not because I was frightened the aeroplane was going to crash. But the thing with flying for me started with, I didn't want to be abroad. And then if I wanted to get home, as daft as this sounds, I couldn't do so within 10 minutes. I know that sounds crazy. Um... But that's how it started. People started thinking, oh, Dave's frightened of flying. I thought, well, actually, maybe I am. But there was certainly a claustrophobic thing about flying. Right. Um, you know, will the, will the doors get locked and nobody can ever undo them? You know, that type of thing. Completely off the scale thinking. Um, but that's how <laughs> that's how powerful the brain the brain is and driven by the amygdala. The amygdala is trying to look after you. But in my case, we may come on to my session, second session under MDMA, I had a blazing round with my amygdala, uh, which was which was quite quite dramatic. But, you know, going back to traditional treatments, it's my view now, without being a scientist, um, that most scientists don't actually hold any faith in this um, chemical imbalance argument that SSRIs and the like are there to solve them. I mean, at what point has anybody ever gone in to a doctor saying, oh, 
feeling a bit anxious, a bit lonely and not sure what to do about it. Just wait there, sir, I'll measure your serotonin levels. You know, at what point do we think how much of this is social and how much of this is just life happening? You know, when, when, when do they say, well, what's going on in your life? Well, I lost my mum six months ago or, you know, my brother's very ill or I've lost my job. Or when, when does that conversation happen? Um, it's a chemi chemical imbalance. Well, I don't feel bad all the time. So is it up and down, this chemical imbalance? I mean, the, if the more you I, think about it, the more you think it's crazy. Well, I think it's a big pharma invention, frankly, to be honest. Um, it would make sense, you know, just, it's just a simplistic way of taking something that's quite complex and saying, oh, we have the solution for you right here. It's a chemical imbalance. I mean, your life is basically just... Uh, you know, people's political views, whatever, is just a series of events. They, they take inventory over time, and then it forms their constitution of who they are. Um, but you're right. Like, if you... I think people have a genetic uh, predisposition, especially people who are Irish. Um, a lot of depression runs in my that side of my family. But um, sometimes, you know, you, you hit a lot of talk, you know, a lot of talks today about, like, uh, you know, Oprah's doing a documentary mental health with Prince Harry and, um, you know, it's a lot about meditation and stuff like that. And I think sometimes it's a very elitist take, meaning um, self-care, meditation, all these things are tools of the privileged. When you have three kids or three jobs you have to work and you're living in poverty, um, meditation is not really going to help you. Sometimes it's just your life circumstances that you have to overcome or fix or escape. Um, but if big pharma can come in and say, oh no, we have something for you that'll, that'll deal with all that. And my, uh, experience with SSRIs, I don't know if it's the same as you, but, um, they stop you from feeling lows, but they also stop you from feeling highs and you're not really living. You're sort of just a drone like existence, uh, very flat affect. Um, and to me that when I took them, it was just no way to live and that I would rather feel the low lows, but I'd also want to feel joy, um, because that's life right? Life is the highs and lows. Um, so for me, it was just something that I couldn't possibly do long term, because I just felt like I was missing out on a part of life. I don't know if you feel the same. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think they helped my anxiety for a short while. And I'm talking weeks, but I stuck with them for ages. And it, it absolutely affected my libido. <laughs> yes. And I remember yeah, masturbating and I was like, am I ever going to come? Like, it was like, it was like a joke. It felt like it was a joke. I just kept jerking yeah. off for like an hour. It was very frustrating. Yeah. Bet, yeah. <laughs> what a waste of time when you ought to be able to do that in 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's, it, it also gave me these things that I call brain zaps. When I move my eyes, I get this little tss, tss sensation in my head. Um, I mean, we don't really yeah, know how they work long term. It's kind of like anesthesia or anesthetics. Um, they don't really know specifically how it works. I will say one of the things I experienced is I was jogging on them one time and for I stopped and for about five seconds, I didn't know where I was. And that was enough for me to just yeah. say, I'm not doing the science experiment anymore. I'll figure out another way. And for me, it was just exercise. Uh, high intensity interval training was we just got rid of any of my mental health problems but enough about me okay so i want to talk about the fun stuff um so when my parents are actually going through their divorce and uh, it was a really really tough time in my life what got me through that was mdma house music going out with my friends until three four in the morning dancing letting loose just sort of total escapism um 
I never paired it, like I mentioned, never paired it with any kind of therapy, but it was therapeutic. And I did feel like there was what they called the afterglow, where the next day I would, and the day after, I felt lighter um, after doing it. Um, so you started in 2019, you, st- you start this trial, it's, thir- I was reading here, 13 other alcoholics you were given it, along with therapy sessions. Was this something that was provided free of charge by the NHS? Um, I don't think by the NHS, but it was free of charge to the participants. So I think the project had got some funding, but I can't tell you where that was from. Okay, so you take the tablet, you lay on the bed, headphones, very similar to our previous guest who did it with mushrooms, um, and they give you headphones, and then describe to us what you felt. Um, Well, bearing in mind I was very nervous about taking MDMA because I hadn't ever taken any, um, I'm going to say a street drug, clearly this was from a hospital and you know, medical <clears throat> grade. Uh, and I was worried about hallucinating, but the team calmed me down on that. So I was in a pretty good, pretty good place when I went into the first MDMA session. And I think a key thing to know is you've had three or four non-MDMA sessions with the therapist before that in the preceding weeks. So you've built a little bit of uh, relationship and sense of trust. That was important for me. And when I arrived on the day, um, they talk about, you'll have heard of this phrase, set and setting. No. Which I think is, which is really important. So if you're going to take a drug like that, um, set and setting means it's important for you to have the right mindset before you take it. Um, so I felt calm. Um, I was relaxed. I was looking forward to it. That was the set, which is my mindset. And the setting was the environment. So that was, you know, a nice cozy room, you know, two friendly therapists that I knew, um, nice lighting, you know, nice bed. It was all, it was all very cozy and that's the setting. So those two were ticked. And this is why they would say it's quite dangerous to do it on your own. Um, so anyway, to answer your question, I thought that was important to, to mention that as context. I took the MDMA. Um, it, it still hadn't kicked in for me and I was lying on the bed in shorts and t-shirt, um, headphones on, nice music playing. And it still hadn't kicked in after an hour, then an hour and a half, hour and three quarters. And I'm thinking, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. But Ben and Laurie, who my therapists you know they were right by the bedside go with it Dave it'll happen it'll happen just try and relax you might get a little bit of anxiety from a few minutes when it kicks in and a couple of minutes later I got oh a little bit anxious and then almost in two breaths it was gone I said I think it's working I think it's working <laughs> you know like a kid at Christmas and there I am in my mid-50s um so I put the eye mask on and they say to you, they don't direct you in any specific, to any specific, they don't direct you in a specific way. What they say is just lie back and, and see what comes up. You know, see what comes up, almost inviting stuff to come up. And 
it was it was bizarre. Um, after a few minutes, I just got this image in my head, and I have to say, guys, that I felt absolutely stone cold sober, not intoxicated in the least. I mean, I get the fact that I, you can argue I was, um, but I just felt super sharp, uh, very, very energetic, very bright, but just calm. Um, nothing like alcohol. And this image then came into my mind of me in my bedroom on the night of the murder. And instead of being dark and the perpetrator with his panicky breathing at the end of my bed, the room was warmly lit. I was sat up in bed in my pajamas. Um, and I just looked at him and I said, pretty sure I know what you've done downstairs. And I'm pretty sure you could kill me now, but I just want you to know I'm not frightened of you anymore. And, and, and then mum appeared in the room and we both said to him, what's driven you to do this? Um, you're probably going to go to prison for quite a long time. But, you know, we, I or we think you should try and work out why you've reacted in such a bad way um, and get yourself helped, get yourself some treatment. And it finished with the three of us having, having a hug and that was it. Empathy. That's what it is. Yeah. Empathy and understanding. You know, I know they call MDMA the love, love drug. <laughs> And it is quite remarkable. It's quite remarkable. It breaks down the barriers that we all have with people. Um, our preconceived notions, our biases, our walls. Um, I've done it with many people for the first time. And I always kind of chuckle because it's like I'm, I've done it probably probably 25 different times. And when I do it, was I kind of enjoy that experience of someone else doing it to watch them. And a lot of the people, especially the ones that are quite repressed, they can't control how much comes flooding out. Um, so they'll just walk up to different people and tell them what they love about them and what they mean in their life. And just the conversations you kind of have sometimes when you're drunk, but they're a lot more sloppy. Um, so I see people do that. And I always say, like, the downside, the only downside I've ever had to MDMA besides the come down is, uh, is that if you like someone, you will express to them exactly how you feel about them, especially if you're dating them in the beginning, um, because you you can't understand why you wouldn't tell them. Because the normally person is just sort of playing that game, oh, I, I better like hold back, I better not show all my cards, but the drug just breaks down all those boundaries um, between people. It is really a powerful, powerful experience. Um, now, when the therapists are there, uh, what are they saying to you? Like, are they asking you what you're feeling or are they asking you specific questions? They're really just um, facilitating you staying in the moments and allowing things to come up. And then, you know, they will periodically say, you know, has anything come up? What is it? Talk through it. Um, and then they'll say, a bit like the AMDR, you'll do it in okay, what just came up, talk through that, and then, okay, let's do that again. And you go round and around. And I went 
you couldn't have missed all of the things, but you know, I I made peace with another great fear of mine, which is losing my dad. My dad's eighty six. Um, he's still sharp as a tack, but you know, it's inevitable. He's going to die. We're all going to die. Um, but I kind of kind of made peace with that, and I. When we when we met up as a family a few days later, I was explaining this whole experience, and that's something I mentioned to my dad, and he said, "Well, I'm glad you've done that. I think I should be a bit more worried about that than you." <laughs> um, was that so something that lingered for your whole life? From I mean, it would make sense uh, from losing your mom. The second biggest fear is that you're going to also lose your dad. So did that linger in the years after, like twelve onwards? Yeah, maybe not 12 onwards, but certainly from sort of 30s. Interesting. Yeah, it makes sense. So did you you did it the one time, and then um, how many more times after that did you try it? So once more, there's a, another couple of non-MDMA psychotherapy sessions in between, and you do it for a second and final time, and... That was also also profound, um, but quite different. How so? And well, I, I talked about second setting. I went into the session. Setting was fine, but I'd got in a bit of a tiz about something for a day or two earlier. So when I drove down to Bristol, my mindset was was not good. You know, I was quite anxious about a couple of things um, and I took the MDMA and probably should have been more open not not that I was being malicious I just didn't you know know about setting setting at the time so when I took the MDMA um, that just made me extremely anxious and very panicky and it, I, all I wanted to do was run out of the room. And it took every ounce of strength that I had not to do so. Um, but I stayed there. The therapists were really good. Um, they sort of tried to keep me calm. Said, it's going to be okay. It's going to pass. Um, all I wanted to do was run out and just run and run and probably jump into the first pub. And I was sweating, I was rubbing my thighs, just trying to get rid of the panicky energy. Um, and then I started having this raging shouting match with my amygdala saying, you know, you need to fuck off now. You've looked after me for long enough. I know you're trying to do your best, but you're not welcome anymore. You know, life is going to be much better without you being on high alert now. Get it out, you know. It was um, lots of swearing and lots of anger and lots of shouting, and it went on for quite a while. Um, and then all of a sudden it passed. And then I ended up soaking in sweat, just walking up and down the room, getting rid of that energy, but, you know, patting my heart and sort of saying, having this conversation with my heart, <laughs> saying it's all about me and you now. It's all about me and you. We're in charge now. We're in charge. He's done his job. He's, he's history now. Um, it's all about me and you. And this conversation lasted again for another hour and a half. 
So it's quite it's quite a tough day, but a really good finish, completely different to the first session. So I think the first session was a little bit about making peace with the perpetrator, and the second was more about some sort of cathartic release of of anger. So what I want to talk to you about, just to, to close this out here, um, I was reading the article. So with talk therapy, 75% of people were back to their pre-trial levels of drinking within nine months. MDMA drops that to 21%. And it said in the article that you no longer consider yourself an alcoholic. What I want to understand is like, you, you've gone, gone through this experience. What are the lingering effects today um, in, your, in your interpersonal relationships, in your outlook? Um, what lasted for you? And do you think you have to go back to it? To keep, it's it, like, do you think it's something that's going to last permanently or have to keep revisiting that experience? Well, well, I, ha- I did have a, a rocky ride, you know, afterwards because I was expecting a light switch, you know, it's either on or off because I was reading in previous trials about people now being classed as not even being on the PTSD scale. So I think I probably am still on it. But after the rocky ride for a month or two, I kind of reflected and I thought, well, hang on a minute. You know, you, this afterglow lasted for days and days and days for me. And, you know, it just gave me an insight into what could be. And it's that insight that I think has convinced me that it is possible to feel like that again. So I would say now I am calmer than I've been for many, many, many years. I'm more resilient than I've been for many, many, many years. Um, I'm not teetotal. I still enjoy a social drink. Um, that's always been part of my life. Um, the serious drinking happened from sort of sort of mid to late 40s through my early 50s. So I'm in a much better place now. This was the most, I've tried, as I said, over 50, you know, different therapies and therapists. This is the most profound change I've ever had. Wow. Let's go do some right now. (laughs) You know, it's it's what you were talking about, the sweating and the, I mean, it is a stimulant. So when you were talking about those things, because I've always paired it with some sort of dancing, because I can't imagine sitting down doing it. It just makes you jittery, you know, upbeat kind of thing. So a lot of people pair it with that stuff. I wonder if I, if I try this, I wonder if I could stay in one spot and then sort of ignore the stimulation. Um, cause I believe there's amphetamines and stuff like that in it, but the stuff you got was probably a lot more pure than the garbage I'm buying on the streets. <laughs> Absolutely. Jordan. I think what I have is clinical medical grade, pure hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I know your computer's dying, but this has been incredibly illuminating. Um, Dave pounds, do you want to, if anyone is interested in this, do you, can you direct them to anywhere if they live in the UK? Is there a specific organization? Um, Frankie, probably if they, if they want to know about any trials that are happening in the UK, then they need to call or make contact to Dr. Ben Sessler. Okay. Who, who'd be up, who'd be on this, who led this trial and beyond this trial, he's now setting up 15 psychedelic clinics in the UK five in Europe. The only thing he's allowed to use at the moment is ketamine, which you mentioned earlier. In infusion form. Yeah. Okay. We'll put his information in the show notes. Um, we'll let you go before your computer dies. Dave Pounds. Thank you so much, Dave. This has been 
incredibly interesting. And I'm sure a lot of people listening learned a lot too. Yeah, I'm nice to meet you guys. Take care, Dave. See you later. Cheers.